0: Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come, but substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on acticism and worship of angels, going on into detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together with its joints and ligaments, grow with, with a growth as from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, We're referring to things that all, that all perish as they are used or according to hum, human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, I can't pronounce that word, asceticism, and severity to the body. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh.
1: Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you as the source of all truth and the source of all life. We come to you empty, broken, and Father, it is you who heal us and fill us with yourself. Your Holy Spirit is poured into into our hearts and our hearts overflow with the love that is from the Father. I pray for our congregation this morning as we have faced many dangers, toils, and snares this past week. Physical pain in our bodies, emotional pain, broken hearts and relationships, and we feel the thorns and thistles of a broken world. Father, and we know things are not as they are supposed to be. Father, it is you who is our great shepherd. It is you who are the Great Physician, and you heal us and make us whole, not always physically, but in our hearts. And you have drawn us near to yourself, and you call us sons and daughters. Your love is unconditional. You have declared us your children before the council, before the jury, before the witnesses of this world. You have declared us your sons and daughters, and the declaration of God cannot change. Father, we rest in your unfailing love, in your covenant faithfulness, even when we are like donkeys. We are like sheep, wander from the safety of the good shepherd. We are foolish. Father, I pray for our nation that is torn asunder And there are so many uh, philosophies and worldviews and false hopes and counterfeit gods that they put their trust in, and we so easily, as the church, get distracted by those things as well, and we fail to live as prophets. We fail to live as a light of to the nations. Father, I pray that our hope is in the gospel. Our allegiance is not to our nation, though we love our nation. Our allegiance is to our king and to the kingdom of heaven, which we will be in for eternity. And I pray that we would be faithful to pray for our leaders, our our president, pray for our senators, our representatives. I pray for those that are working in hospitals, those that are working in government, those that are working in businesses, that we would be a light to the world, that our work would so lift up and be done in a way that it would give us an opportunity to share Christ. I pray for our students as they study and play and rest, that they would uh, not succumb to the temptations of this world, but their desire would be like Jesus. And all of us, whether it be teenagers or senior citizens, that we would not succumb to peer pressure, but our eyes would be fixed on the, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, be with us in the proclamation of your word. May your spirit overcome our limitations, our sinful hearts, and our sinful proclamation, uh, Lord, but may you cut through and reveal your word by your Spirit. In the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I want to thank, before I begin, I want to thank Scott and Jenny and Olivia for stepping up and, and playing this morning. Um, there was a, a last-minute change of plans, and Grant and Stacy could not be here this morning, and so there was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth about Friday evening about 9 o'clock when trying to figure out what we're going to do this morning. But I'm so thankful that Scott and Jenny and Olivia, I'm not sure where Olivia is this moment, but if you would let her know, Richard, uh, just how thankful I am that they have used their talents and abilities uh, to be able to lead us and facilitate our music this morning. So. With that being said, we turn to Colossians chapter 2. We are finishing up uh, this chapter 2 and about about to start chapter 3, which is the newness of life, how to walk in the Spirit and walk in Christ. In uh, Mark Twain's classic novel, uh, Tom Sawyer, it's about a rambunctious orphan who seems always to be getting in trouble. After playing hooky and getting his clothes dirty in a fight, Aunt Polly grounds him on a Saturday and says, You have to whitewash this fence and you can't play with your friends. And to Tom, this was the worst punishment ever. And initially, he was downtrodden at his poor luck. But he realized really quickly that he could convince his friends and the boys in the neighborhood, that to, and if he could convince them with his smooth talking and a bit of deception, he would be able to get them to pay to do his work. So, as the story goes, many of you will probably know it, that day Tom collected an apple, a kite in good repair, a dead rat, and a string to swing it with. Twain says, in the middle of the afternoon came from being a poor, poverty-stricken boy in the morning. Tom was literally rolling in wealth. At the end of the chapter, it says, he had besides the things before mentioned, 12 marbles. Parts of a Jew's harp, a piece of blue bottle glass to look through, a spool cannon, a key that wouldn't unlock anything, a fragment of chalk, a glass stopper of a decanter, a tin soldier, a couple of tadpoles, six firecrackers, a kitten with one eye, a brass doorknob, a dog collar but no dog, the handle of a knife, four pieces of orange peel, and a dilapidated old window sash." In his smooth talking, Tom had a nice, good idle time while the plenty of company and the fence got three coats of whitewash, and it would have gotten more, and he would have bankrupt every boy in the city um, if he hadn't run out of whitewash. And Twain makes um, an editorial comment at the end of chapter two about the nature of man. He says this, Tom Sawyer, prove that you can make worthless things seem um, attractive by making them difficult and people will do whatever they can to attain and pay dearly to have it even when it means giving up something valuable to get it now you may be thinking what in the world does tom sawyer have to do with colossians chapter two we have the same problem as the gullible friends of tom sawyer We will do anything and trade anything um, to anyone who promises us fullness or satisfaction or life. Time and time again, we fall victim to the slick-talking salesmen who say that we must do things or know things or produce things in order to be valuable or in order to be satisfied. In the end, it leaves us broken and desperate and cheated, worse off than when we started. And what Paul is doing here in Colossians chapter 2, he is telling them and he is warning them before, in chapter 3, he rolls out what life in Christ looks like. He rolls out one last warning about three things they need to be warned themselves and watch out. And until, so they will not trade infinite joy in Christ for the eternal bondage of slavery to sin. I want you to know this morning, Ocean Park, that fullness is never found in what you do, but what Christ has done. Isn't that the Gospel? Fullness is found in, not in what you do, but what Christ has done. So in order to be able to get there where we're going, we have three emphasis in breaking it up. Paul, Paul tells us to seek what is real, to hold fast to life, and to die to worldly wisdom. Seek what is real, hold fast to life, and die to worldly wisdom. And those will be back if you're trying to take notes. And if we heed Paul's warning this morning, brothers and sisters, oh, they're still up there. If, if we heed Paul's warning, it will protect us from following the counterfeit gods of this world that lure our hearts away from fullness in Christ, Jesus Christ, the only source of life for us. For at the cross, those who have been united to Christ have been united to his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we do not need to seek fullness anywhere else because fullness was accomplished at the cross. So we begin in our text this morning in verse 16 and 17. You are called Ocean Park to seek what is real. To seek what is real. We live in a day and age when your worth or a person's worth is judged on all sorts of things. When you have a conversation and you're gathering information about somebody, you are constantly judging them. Now, I know you don't always think you are, but you're always assessing that. Some of the things is your parenting. Depending on who you talk to, Scott, would you get me a, a water bottle from the back? Depending on who you talk to about your parenting, you're gonna be judged whether your kid goes to a public school A private school, a monastery school, or is homeschooled. Your um, diet is judged by whether you eat non GMO, gluten free, vegan, plant based, paleo, Atkins, seafood I see food and I eat it or whether your meat is grass fed or your chicken is free ranged. They will judge you based on that. Your worth as an individual is judged by the job you have, the person that you voted for, the person that you married, the car that you drive, the clothes that you wear, the house that you're living in, and whether your coffee is free trade or not. People are always assessing value, and often what we do is we fall victim to those. I have to prove my value to X, therefore I must find my significance in this, in what I do. Thank you, sir. If you're anything like me, you've probably fallen victim to those many times, and you realize you can drive yourself insane trying to please people when, truth be told, you're trying to please people you really don't even like when you do that. Now, Paul tells us there are three things that we need to watch out for. And the first thing he tells us in verse 16 and 17 is to watch out for legalism. Watch out for legalism. And legalism is in trying to keep impossible standards. It, legalism makes your worth based on whether or not you adhere to somebody's laws and somebody's standards. Legalism creates a standard and it judges a person by that standard. If a Christian would never do A, and then they make this big long list. Legalism, brothers and sisters, is not just a poison in our society, but legalism is a poison in the church as well. Why is it a problem? And what, why is it a problem in Colossae? Because what they were doing in Colossae, there was a group of Jewish individuals who were saying, you can't be a part of the people of God unless you follow a particular diet and unless you follow certain days and you celebrate certain days. Notice verse 16. They were, they were emphasizing passing shadows under the, uh, over the reality, the, the eternal reality. Verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. And he gives two warnings to these believers. Many of them were new believers in coming and trusting Christ before. And they were told, well, you're not real Christians. You're not first class certified A++ rating by the Better Business Bureau or the Better church Bureau, whatever the bureau is that judges Christians. You're not first class, you're sort of a second class. You might be able to sit in the back and you have limited things, but you're not a first- class Christian unless you follow diets and you follow certain days that we celebrate festivals. And Paul warns them, and, and, and I can feel don't let this is an impassioned warning to Paul to people he loves, don't make them make, let you feel like a second-class Christian because you don't do enough. Because you don't eat certain foods, or you do eat certain foods, or you don't celebrate certain festivals. He doesn't now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say diets and days are silly, and they have nothing to do with Christianity. He doesn't say that. What he says is he reminds them that dietary laws of the Old Testament and the festivals of the Old Testament were reminders, were signposts, were arrows that were pointing to something that was greater than themselves. The dietary laws were sensitizing God's people to purity. The seven Jewish feasts were ways of teaching the people about the work that the coming Messiah would come and do amongst his people to redeem them. The Sabbaths reflect the ultimate rest that God was leading his people into. So we don't, as New Testament Christians, say, well, we're under grace, not under law, and and rip our Old Testament out of the Bible. We study it and we learn it. Why? Because it gives us a a more robust, fuller picture of the righteousness of God and the promise that was coming. And I tell you, when you understand the laws of the Old Testament, it's like going from a a 29-inch tube TV to the high-definition TV for the first time. Do you remember that first time you saw a high-definition TV? Men, you may know it better. You might have it written down and celebrated each year, but you, you're like, wow, I've never seen such detail. And some newscasters, you're like, I've never wanted to see such detail. Um, but you see this, this, here goes it. They don't prepare you in seminary for Amber Alerts that go off in the middle of your sermon. Pray for, pray for that child, whatever they are. Pray that the Lord would protect them from anyone who seek to do them harm. But Paul doesn't just say, well, forget about that. That's no big deal. He says the reason the Lord blessed his people with diets and days is because he was teaching them of that greater reality and that greater substance that was coming, and that reality is here, and his name is Jesus Christ, So we are no longer under those passing shadows, but we come and we come under Christ and we put on Christ because He is the eternal reality that we see in verse 17. Notice, these diets and days are a shadow of the things to come, but notice the substance. You can look at my shadow, where is it, back there, and you can tell a lot about me. I'm tall, I got big ears, I got big feet by looking at my shadow. But if you really want to know about me, look at me. I can use an example. If um, Manzinis and I, before we got married, we were about away from each other a year. And we would send letters back and forth before texts and, and emails were predominant. And I still have those letters in my closet, and so does she. But when I'm with her, I'm not reading the letters. I'm listening, and I'm talking, and I'm looking at her. And the same way as diets and days were a picture and a representation of a greater reality, these diets and days were a, great, were a picture pointing us to a greater reality, that reality is Christ. Therefore, we don't, are no under um, obligation to um, follow those for our way and our devotion, but we learn from those things. But what happens is the shadows become the rule and people say, well, if you don't follow diets and days, you are not a right Christian first class. And Jesus says this is, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Those things that that the law was pointing towards, the diets and days has come. And then he continues, and we saw this in Sunday School this morning, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses, the law, and the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, he interprets them, all the scriptures, the things concerning themselves. Jesus is all over the Old Testament, woven into the very fabric. Every story, every law, whispers his name, and it says, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. He is the long-awaited one that we wait for, Jesus didn't come to replace or disregard the laws, but he came to fulfill them. He is the purity that the dietary laws reveal. He is the fulfilled work of redemption that the festivals foreshadowed. He secured the rest in eternity that God is leading his people. Ocean Park, Jesus Christ is the substance. He is the reality that these shadows reflect. He is the real, genuine article. You may not struggle with the question of, should I be kosher in my diet, and should I celebrate the Feast of Booths when it rolls around? However, you may struggle with the pressure of legalism that says this, you can only be a Christian if you do fill in the blank, or you can't be a Christian unless you do this. Now, I will say, and don't say, well, I can go do whatever I want. Just Chris just gave me a pass. There are a lot of do's and don'ts that the Lord calls us, that Jesus says, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. But your worth and your fulfillment and your significance and your eternity is not based on what you do. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you, Paul says. And I can almost see his passion and his writing, just like a parent when kids mess with, with other kids mess with their child. Don't let them speak to you that way. Don't let them do that to you. You can feel this passion that Paul's has. Ocean Park, your value as a Christian is not based on what you do, it's what Christ has done. Your value is not based on what you do, but what Christ has done. What legalism does is replace Christ-likeness with self-likeness, okay? In other words, unless you're like me, somebody says, who's committed to legalism, you don't have any value and you don't have any work. So rather than seeking to please Christ with our life, you're seeking to please Captain Legalism. And they come in all different fours and sizes and shapes. Kent Hughes says this, He says, legalism spawns judgmentalism, which is miserable for the judged and the judging because it shrivels their souls. Legalism is a heavy burden to bear for yourself and for others because you never know when to please and you're never good enough and you can never even live up to your own standard. How could you possibly live up to somebody else's standard? Legalism is joyous because it heaps a burden on you that you cannot bear, a burden of thou shalt nots. It demands uniformity, that you have to think like them, talk like them, act like them, dress like them, do everything just like that. It demands that, and then it produces a surface-level faith. Legalism says all we, how we look like on the outside is what mattered, but it ignores the, 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 the sins of the heart. It, legalism can't uh, affect coveting and lust and hatred and bitterness. All it does is covers it up and allows that sin to fester because legalism cannot change your heart. Only Christ can do that. Legalism, brothers and sisters, will lead you away from Christ into the emptiness and the bondage of captivity. Let me ask you this, what is more important? A well-mannered person who doesn't have a tattoo and listen to rock music, but whose heart is cold towards Jesus? Or a person who might be rough around the ages, but genuinely loves Jesus and seeks to honor him with their heart and with their soul and their mind? Think about it. What matters most, Christ-likeness or legalism. Well, you say, well, clearly the latter. But let me tell you, as my mama told me when I was a little a boy, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it, Christian. Christian James, when we try to prove our worth by some, to someone or so our superiority over someone else by what we do and we don't do, we are trading what Christ has done at the cross for the badge and the bondage of legalism. Paul tells the Colossians, as he tells us today, don't you dare let people judge you by anything but by Christ. Why? Because if you do, it will leave you into captivity and it will leave you empty. Because fullness is never found in what you do, but what Christ has done. Fullness is never found in what you do, but what Christ has done. Ocean Park, seek the only thing that is real, and that's Jesus Christ. Legalism was not the only false hope that these Colossians were struggling with and that and stalked the church and wanted to rob them of their joy and fullness and lead them away from Christ. The next one was mysticism, mysticism. And mysticism, and Paul addresses that by saying, hold fast to life in verse 18 and 19. This empty pride had uh, penetrated the church in the, not in the form of diets and days, but in angels and visions. Another false hope that embracing this form of mysticism with puffed up pride to the point that it would disqualify anyone who did not achieve a certain experience or a certain knowledge level. Well, if you're not, if you haven't experienced this, or if you don't know this, you're again, you can sit in the back, maybe the foyer, but that's about it. Paul says, don't let them disqualify you. Don't let them convince you that your worth is anything other than in Christ. It's not knowledge, it's not experience. Your worth is at the cross. And from that, you respond in a life of faithful obedience, as we'll see in Colossians chapter 3. You must reject their teaching and hold fast to Christ. Notice this false humility of the false teachers in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Sorry, Mike, for the word asceticism. The worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without any reason by sensuous mind. It's likely that these false teachers had come into the church with the cunning wit and deception of Tom Sawyer. They could talk a really good game. And these people, some of them were beginning to, get to bite the hook, per se. And they were saying stuff like, we're so sinful, we must deprive ourselves to be able to get the, the sin out of this, uh, this body of ours. And this <clears throat> feigned humility, this false humility, was actually a backdoor way to, of pride and to puff themselves up. Now, the word asceticism is another word for humility. Uh, There's other translations that um, translate self-abasement. Another one is pious self-denial. They were promoting things like fasting, not just fasting so you can make much of Christ, but fasting to prove your worth and be able to get some kind of vision from God because you were fasting and denying yourselves of other things. I call that hallucinating. I call that you probably fasted too long if you start seeing things. But this is what they were doing. This is a common practice. You would fast for a long time and able to have visions and things like that. The second thing, it says the worship of angels. Now, I don't believe, and and honestly, these are a little squirrely in their languages. I don't believe the worship of angels is like, hey, everybody, let's stop worshiping Jesus. We're going to worship Gabriel for a minute here. But what was happening is they were getting so obsessed with angels. We're going to the angels and they can bring our request up to Jesus and up to God. They were being so obsessed with angels that they were, their focus was so much on angels, it was a form of worship to them. They weren't worshiping Christ. They, their hearts were being drawn towards angels. The other thing it says is going on into detail about visions. The pagan temples that surrounded these areas, you would get a vision and you would go inside the Holy of Holies of the pagan temple to be able to receive a vision. And what they were doing is they were using angels and fasts and they were getting these visions and saying, I, this, and they would on and on how spiritual they are because they had this experience. And it was really a sword. They would puff out their peacock feathers and say, Look what the Lord has blessed me with. I am so unworthy. Let me tell you about that again. And it was just this pride that was puffing them up and inflating their egos. egos. And they would look at other Christians who hadn't experienced these things and say, You're just not at the same level as I am. I'm going to pray for you that you can be like me someday. These humble brags, you're like, Really, dude? You see them on Facebook all the time. My kid is, uh, you know, I'm, in other words, I am a great parent. Um, I have nobody in mind, for the record. I'm on the inner circle, they would say, and you're on the outside looking in. Paul, as a loving big brother, as a spiritual mentor, as a spiritual father, looked at them, he says, don't you dare let them disqualify you from such, by such foolishness. Don't let them disqualify you. Why? Because these people are not connected to the body of Christ at all. Notice he says, "Don't this false humility is worthless." Look at 19, and not they are not holding fast to the head Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through joints and ligaments, grows with a um, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul warns them that if you embrace the methods of these false teachers, you will be letting go of Christ. You cannot embrace the Christ and then also embrace the ways of the false teachers. You either are holding on to Christ or you're holding on to them. And if you're not holding on to Christ, your soul is shriveling and dying like a shrub and, and that is pruned and the, the branches are left on the ground. Paul promises you will not find fullness and you will not find growth in earthly taboos and celestial observances and worship of angels and star-spangled visions. Such things only puff up human pride with a hot air of empty, uh, empty pride and they sever the bonds that hold you to Christ. Ocean Park, if you desire the growth that is from God, that is brought about by the Holy Spirit Don't look to acts of self-deprivation. Look to Jesus. Don't look to angels for your protection. Look to Jesus. Don't look to visions to guide you in truth. Look to Jesus. He is the source of all life. He is Lord and Savior by whom all things and for all things were made and created. Why would we leave the almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, and go to silly angels and visions and things like that when the Lord says, come to me and cast your cares upon me? Brothers and sisters, you must hold fast to Christ who is your life. I want you to notice one other aspect of this exhortation that he says about holding fast. Notice it's not in isolation. It's not as a lone ranger Christians, but it's part of a body. Notice verse 19 a little bit in. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from Christ. Christ. I have watched in my five years here, in my 41 years of life, most of them growing up in church, many years not clueless about really what was going on, but over the years I've put things together. And I've seen far too many people that have drifted into isolation, separate from the church, from the body, from faithful teachers, from loving accountability, and they have caught this Isolation, emphasizing experience, and emphasizing knowledge has caused their souls and to shrivel and their life in Christ to decay. Rather than holding onto the cross, they grew isolated by self-pride because of their experiences and because of their knowledge. I want to give you two, two examples. One that I'm guilty of, one that I've watched. I call it cage stage theology. There's a a phenomenon known as cage stage when a believer is often uh, introduced to reform theology, specifically the sovereignty of God in salvation. Instead of producing humility that you didn't do anything, God is the one who loved you and chose you. It causes them to be incredibly puffed up with pride and the kind of thing you have to lock them into a cage so they don't hurt themselves and others. Do you see that there? And, and it says, well, I have a deeper understanding of scriptures over all those other people. And if those in their cage stage don't receive a swift kick in the bottom by a mature believer who says, stop it, they grow in isolation and in self-pride because of their knowledge, and what happens is they lose hold of Jesus who saved them. Instead of saying by, faith al- by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, they say by grace alone through my theology alone. Brothers and sisters, Jesus tells the Ephesians they had great theology. Man, they could Cite chapter, and verse. They knew their theologies, the, the first century Calvins and Edwards and Luthers and Wesleys. They knew it all. And he says, and he writes, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endures, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, the false teachers, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He says, you see right through bad teaching. You know bad teaching. And you, man... Chapter and verse, you, you, they can't stand it. But look what in a few verses later. But I have this against you. It's a big one. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Their love, instead of for Christ who saved them, was their love for themselves and for theology and their doctrine. Now again, I have probably 500 books in my library and I love doctrine, I love reading, and I love talking about it. But brothers and sisters, I love Jesus the most because he's the one who saved me despite myself, despite my sin. He chose to love me and give me mercy. Second thing I have seen in walking is calling craving prophecy and missing Jesus. There are many well-known televangelists who have an unflappable conviction. They know when Christ will return and how Christ will return. And so they make big deals about blood moons and the length of weeks and temple mounts. Every time a leader in the Middle East sneezes, they get excited and they go read Daniel and Revelation and Matthew 24 and 25. And they update charts and all the things and they identify seals and bulls and Antichrist and beasts. And they become so focused on prophecy that their heart slowly grows cold to Christ who is coming. They know all about how he is coming, but they ignore how to be prepared for his coming because they are all obsessed with endless speculation and conjecture about the end times, they have neglected the gospel. It doesn't have to be Ocean Park blatant heresy that comes into the church and says, here, follow me, I got something better. Satan will say, sure, I would love you to be obsessed with doctrinal purity so you don't have to, so you're distracted from Jesus. I'd love for you to know biblical concepts, but ignore Jesus. I'd love for your spiritual experiences to be lifted up and magnified as long as you ignore Jesus. Keep, keep it up. Sometimes that's the easiest thing for him, like Tom Sawyer making the whitewash fence, thinking, man, this is great to wait to spend a Saturday afternoon. All the while he's kicking back, eating an apple, swinging a rat, thinking, man, these guys are gullible. Satan will use whatever tricks and means possible to get you to trade a life that's connected to Christ for a pocket full of useless trinkets. We'll see next week in chapter 3 what life connected to Christ looks like. But I want you to think today, what is my focus? Where is my value? And what are the pitfalls that take my focus off of Christ Is it angels and visions? Is it new revelation? Is it spiritual gifts? Is it sound theology? Is it biblical teaching? Is it Christian service? Is it rigorous Bible study? Is it a seminary education? Or is it something else that the Satan is using to get your focus off of Jesus? And to ignore the gospel and to be focused on everything but the gospel. Don't allow the side things to replace the main things and to let your focus and your grip go off of Christ onto something else. Why? Because fullness in Christ is not found in what you do, what you know, or what you experience, but what Christ has done. Seek what is real and hold fast to life. And again, a lot of those things are really good. And it's really important to know how Jesus is coming, and that he's coming. But we can lose sight of Jesus when we get wrapped up in theology and history and predictions and all that stuff, and we miss the person. In closing, as we run out of time here, verses 20 and 23, Paul tells us to uh, die to world... No, he doesn't tell us there. Okay. Paul tells us to um, die to worldly wisdom in verses 20 through 23. The third false hope that um, Paul warns them to believe is the danger of asceticism and I know you probably want to say tight when I say that but really what asceticism is like rampant self-discipline and avoidance of all kinds of indulgence for religious reasons. I'm not going to smile I'm not going to have fun I may not want to move because I could be doing sin I could be doing something bad what they were doing is they were told they have to do all these things to avoid sin. And again, there's a lot of things that we need to do to put to death that old man, that sinful nature inside of us, but it's not what we do. It's what the Spirit has done through Christ at the cross. Notice this, these powerless things. In 21 through 23, if with Christ you died to the elementary powers of this world, why are you still alive in the world? Why do you submit to regulations, disciplines, deprivations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish according to human precepts and teaching, according to human wisdom, that if I do all these things, I'll be very spiritual and I'll avoid sin, Allah, la the pride, fuel of pride behind it asceticism is a futile attempt to defeat the flesh if you read luther's biography he was a monk and you can't get in a lot of trouble in a monastery they don't do a lot but read the bible and pray but he he said he hours he would go and confess sins of his heart why because his sin his heart was sinful and the deprivations of his life could not address those things they couldn't stop that this is the very thing that Timothy or Paul warned Timothy and Titus. He says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, the Tom Sawyers of false teachers, especially those of the circumcision party. This group of teachers that were saying, you have to be circumcised. You have to do this. These passing shadows. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commandments of people who turn away from the truth. You can say, do all these things to just say no, but you never address the sinfulness of your heart because you just say no and you never turn and say yes to Christ. And it's so, so easy to do. The church of Jesus Christ continually needs to be on guard lest powerless human traditions rob the members of their freedom in Christ. I want you to notice in verse 20, we see the powerlessness of regulations and rules and lists, but we see the power of Christ. If with Christ you died to the elementary powers of the world, we see the power of the cross A do-it-yourself religion that puts your work, your knowledge, and your ability at the center is always doomed to fail. We need the power of the cross that when we die with Christ to our sin. If you set your goals on self-discipline and self-awareness and self-fulfillment and self-esteem and self-actualization and self-help, you will end up worshiping yourself. At the end of the day, if you are in Christ, you have died to the wisdom, to the worship, and the false humility of this world. You don't need rules and regulations, superimposed worship, false humanity, profound doctrinal knowledge, or to treat yourself harshly. You need Jesus every hour. I need you, precious Lord. And that's the first you ask when you open up your eyes. I need you Jesus. I am weak and you are strong. I am scared of what's coming but you make me strong. And I can trust you. You need the cross. You need the Holy Spirit to give you the power to put to death the old self and to make you more like Jesus every day. Don't Embrace legalism and mysticism and asceticism, which are all the works of your hand. But you embrace Christ, cling to the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. Naked come to you from dre- for dress. We need the cross. Make Christ more and make us less. Why? Because fullness is never found in what you do, but what Christ has done. Don't believe the Tom Sawyers of this world who use their wit and their cunning to convince you to trade your freedom to bondage in the end to get you to do what they tell you to do. Trust Christ by seeking what is real, by holding fast to life, and to, by dying to worldly wisdom. I want to close with a great song that I love. If I could convince Jenny in the next five minutes to sing it, we would do that, but I don't think, I don't think she'll go for that, no. It's the Getty's song, my worth is not in what I own. And I want to read you the words that they are. To wonder, um, that's not right. All right, I'm just gonna read them to you. My worth is not in what I own not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I trust him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. And she finishes, two wonders here I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed. My ransom paid at the cross. Brothers and sisters, fullness is not found in what you do, but what Christ has done at the cross.